0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. My printer at the house died on me this morning. or It didn't die, but no ink, so I had to bring my, I had to bring my computer. Um I always wondered if my profess- when professors do this if they're actually doing solitaire while they teach. Because <laughs> I know my students are. I know they are. You know, <laughs> I've gone I actually have kind of gone to a no computer policy in my classes. Um and and it's you know and part part of it my students don't believe me, but part of it is a lot of the work in co- cognitive sciences on how students learn, um, there, there have been a lot of studies done to show that hand note taking actually is a better aid for learning than you know the sort of the keyboard operation. You know, so I so I tell the students that, you know, but the the uh, the unspoken part of that is, and you also can't check your Facebook account and you know all the <laughs> other stuff that you want. Um, anyway, let's let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you. Um, for your kindness to us and your son. And thank you for very good word that we heard this morning already about how, how important and central your, your word is in our lives. And I pray that you'll give us a deep desire and hunger for it because we have a deep desire and hunger for you. And we want to thank you for accommodating yourself to us in the humble forms of human language to speak the truth of your word to us. And so we ask that in this time as we sort of press on that you will You'll help us to have a better sense of how to read and engage the Bible. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on in. Um. Hey, come to the spit section. Safer, right? the, oh, yeah. I, I'm only on the left side of the mouth. I, I, was, I was told to tell you all from the bookstore folks um, that several other copies of, of Bart's evangelical theology have come in. Um, I think there was a rush on the bank last time um, and they ran out. But if, you, if you're interested in that, um, feel free to get a copy. I, I encourage people if they want to give Carl Bart a try. I've mentioned this, I think, a few weeks ago. If you want to give them a try, evangelical theology is a great place to start. Another place worth giving Bart a try. And this isn't a bad idea maybe for those of you who are in book studies or small groups and you're looking for um, reading material. Bart's little book called Dogmatics in Outline. Um, and I encourage people to skip the first chapter unless you kind of get jazzed by... Sort of complicated philosophical and theological questions of method. If that sort of lights your fire, read away. Um, but the the second chapter and on is Bart's detailed exposition of the Apostles' Creed, um, and it's actually a really good resource and, and worth taking time if you're if you're interested in that. I should also say as an aside before I sort of hop in on all this, I'm. I'm, I'm I'm using you all as a little bit of guinea pigs. I'm, I'm sorry, to, t- I shouldn't tell you this, but I, I am. I, I'm, I'm writing an article right now for um, a book that's coming out. I think it's called The Blackwell's Companion to Karl Barth, something like that. Um, and I've been tasked to do the chapter on Barth and Biblical Studies. Um, so that's that, that's part of why I'm, 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 I'm wanting sort of my work during the week to f- sort of feed into what I'm doing here on Sunday, so... And, and it's due by the end of August, so that it kind of works out well. <laughs> so all to say, I spent this whole week with Bart uh, and and wanted to sort of set another context for our understanding of why I think Bart is so important and such a gift to the church. And, and God's kind providence, unaware of what uh, Andrew was going to preach on this morning, but it's so related to what... Andrew is Andrew sort of leaned into about the centrality and the importance of Scripture um, in the shaping of Christian identity and and what it means to be a Christian. Um, you know, the, I've, I've thought about this this week in, in relationship to I don't I don't know I I, I feel the struggle of this um, with people who uh, claim the name of Christian and I, I, I follow the Apostle Paul on this by the way and the Apostle Paul models for us for something in 1 Corinthians, he never questions someone's claim. You deal with someone according to what they're claiming. So I'm not going to question anyone's claim. But people who are Christian in identity, they go to church, um, they might even share a, a similar liturgy. You know, the, the words that we use to shape our prayers and the way in which we talk to God Sunday in and Sunday out resembles our liturgy. Um, the kind of words that we use and yet, when you begin to sort of press in to the substance of what Christian faith is, all of a sudden you begin to realize, I've had this happen several times in the past year, we're talking Chinese to one another. And as we know the same words, but what we what we think this whole thing's about is, we're, we're just in different ecosystems, it seems like to me. Um, and I do think in this year of the Reformation, This is one of the great legacies, I think, of the Reformation for people like you and like me. Namely, when the Reformers were debating with Catholic theologians, and there was a lot of them, debates that went on, whether in written form or in actual colloquia form. When they were debating, you do realize, don't you, that the orthodoxy of the Catholic Church was never something that was called into question. If by orthodoxy we mean by that the affirmation of the historic faith as received and delivered by the apostles into the early church, namely, think Apostles' Creed Nicene Creed. But no, no one debated whether or not Roman Catholics were orthodox in that basic sense of what it means to be on that big Christian highway. But that wasn't enough. In other words, that the, the orthodoxy measured by early fidelity to Trinitarian faith was it necessarily the standard-bearer or the only lens by which truth-telling and whether or not the church was an error, whether how one comes to conclusions regarding those sort of complex matters? I thought, think about this in, in relationship to the churches at Laodicea, right? Smyrna, uh, I mean in, in Revelation. Smyrna, Laodicea, the church at Ephesus. You know what? I bet every one of those churches were orthodox in the sense of, uh, they had a robust understanding of who Jesus was in light of God and the Spirit and the processions and missions of God in eternity and time. I, I, I bet they were orthodox and could sign off of it. And yet Jesus had a problem with them. And I, and I, I spent a lot of time in the prophets as well. Um, in, in Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea. I mean, the, pro, the, the so-called pseudo-prophets that they were speaking against, they probably were pretty orthodox too. In certain areas. Pretty orthodox. And yet, that's not necessarily the standard of, of what fidelity to the faith actually is. So th- these, these things sort of roll into my mind. And why I think Karl Barth is important because he helps uh, me at least to see the importance of scripture and the ongoing life of the church. So, can I, can I, can I give you a, some metaphors here? It's thinking out loud. Um, if you were, go to, were to go to someone like Irenaeus, um, or second century AD, or to someone like Augustine, or let's say Aquinas, and then moving into the people that we really talk about a lot on here, Luther or Calvin, and we were to talk to them about the importance of what the early church called the rule of faith. You heard this language before? The rule of faith. Uh, is there chalk over there? I'm feeling chalky today. So the early church talked about, here's the technical term, the regula fidei, another term was the the canon of truth. right, Um, Irenaeus will talk about the importance of the regula fidei, the canon of truth for making sense of the whole of the Bible. Um, How do we know that when we're reading the Bible, we're talking about the right God? I mean, this is a really big, important matter. Um, so that there's a commitment to, for lack of a better term, orthodoxy for the sake of reading the Bible well. But this is where I think Bart sort of comes into play as a helpful voice in this. Because he agrees with this early church instinct as well. But that was, to use a metaphor, the regular Fidei, orthodoxy, Trinitarian faith. The, the, the best metaphors for those are defensive metaphors. Um, It's a shield. It's a guardrail on the highway to keep you from falling off. It does defensive work to make sure that you know what it is that you're talking about and who it is that you're praying to and what worship looks like in the saving grace of God in Jesus by the Spirit. In other words, it's it's a defensive tool. But it was never understood as the offensive tool, as if that's it. I mean, that's what Christianity is, period. In fact... If Irenaeus were to come in here, or Augustine, or Anselm, or the whole litany of Christian voices on this big, massive Christian highway, right? And we were to ask them, then what is the positive work? Not the negative work, the, 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 the defensive work. What's the positive work of Christian faith when it comes to life and practice? And the answer, I believe, that every one of them would give is, well, the positive work is done by attendance to the Bible itself. Wrestling with Holy Scripture. Because when one wrestles with Holy Scripture, one encounters the very living God. That's what one is doing. And if we want to encounter the living God, then we do so by constant and continual attention to the Bible. You know that Karl Barth wouldn't sign the the pledge, the Declaration of Allegiance to to, uh, Adolf uh, Hitler. And because he wouldn't do that in the early 1930s, he was expelled from his teaching position at the University of Bonn and then had to end up going to the University of Basel in Switzerland, his home country, and there he stayed for the rest of his life. There's a famous story, it's in the biography of Karl Barth, where Barth is giving his last lecture at the University of Bonn. And he tells his students on his way out the door, I love this, it kind of gives me goosebumps, it tells them, exegesis, exegesis, and more Exegesis. Uh, can I put it on in sidewalk terms? Read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. That's what he was saying. Um, and, and think about all that Bart wrote. I mean, it's just massive, erudite, learned, um, complex, first tier thinking. Because when I say first tier thinking, I'm talking like Immanuel Kant, uh, Hegel, Herder. Uh, think, I mean, uh, Wittgenstein, I mean, the great philosophers of the, of the, of the, uh, of the Western world. Bart was a first-tier thinker on their level. That, that's not hyperbole, that is, that is a fact. First-tier thinker. And here's this first-tier thinker saying to his students on the way out the door, let me leave you with this parting word. Read the Bible, read the Bible, and then when you're done, read the Bible some more. That is an early church instinct. That is very much the instinct to sort of drives through that I think the Reformation period regathered and reclaimed that in a church that was beginning to lose that focus. And here we are in our world, and frankly, I'm convinced, as I've said before, that I think this is one of the most important matters that's facing the Western Church in our in our current period. The attendance to the Bible and a recognition that we seek to order our thoughts. Our minds, our hearts, and our affections, according to its internal logic and claims. That's that's the kind of deal. All right. So, with that said, uh, this, there's there's something um, uh, a story I want to tell you about Bart. So, Bart taught at the University of Basel for um, most of his career, and and he was a he was a funny guy. I, I don't I, he's the, you know I, I don't know what you think about what, you know stereotype of a theologian. Can um, kind of dry and air but he Bart was funny, filled with humor. Um, he, the stories of him and, and his sense of uh, sense of humor very, very funny. Um, you know, he would read Louis L'Amour novels to keep up on his English. And when someone asked him why do you read Louis L'Amour novels, he said because I, I want to keep up on my English. And every once in a while, it's just good to see someone get shot. Um, <laughs> you know, so I mean, he he just had a wonderful sort of sense of sense of joy and life. He was a joyous theologian. Now, but he could be very direct. I mean, the, the he, the, you know, Germans and the German theological tradition is built off of what they call Aus ein Setzungen," right? Internal debate. I mean, the, the debate is at the heart of what it means to be a theologian. And Barth got into a long term debate um, with one of his colleagues there at the University of, of Basel, a man by the name of Walter Baumgartner. Uh, now, let me tell you a little bit about Walter Baumgartner. If, if, if you ask any Hebrew 102, 103, 104 student, right? So we're talking about someone who's gotten out of the basics of Hebrew, now they're doing bona fide Hebrew exegesis. Every one of them will know the name Walter Baumgartner. He wrote, he contributed to a lexicon um, that was written during his day and then sort of finished up after he passed off the scene. It's probably the golden standard to this day. Um, when it comes to Hebrew lexicography. I have it on my shelf. I refer to it all the time. If it wasn't so expensive, I would require every one of my students to buy it. All right, so it's that, that's, that's, that's Baumgartner. But Baumgartner, um, was the, he was the premier Old Testament scholar at the University of Basel during Bart's days. Um, and they both taught in the same faculty. Now that, that's, a, that's a neurologic point. That's a nerve end here that, that's gonna sort of contribute to this debate. Baumgartner did not teach in the philosophy faculty. He did not teach in the history faculty. Baumgartner taught in the theology faculty. So both of them were in the same faculty, and this created some significant tension between these two figures. One time, this wasn't very nice, Karl Barth told a colleague, and this is in the biography, Baumgartner's lectures are just dry bread. That's what he called them, right? Um, And a series of letters sort of emerged... Um, after both Bart and Baumgartner's death, between these two colleagues uh, over the span of some 15 years, these two wrote letters back and forth to one another. Um, I, uh, Rudolf Schmidt taught at the University of Göttingen. He found these letters and he published them. Unfortunately, they're only in German, so I've got to, got to work real slowly through them. But these letters are fascinating because here you have Baumgartner who fires off one missive. I just got your most recent volume, theology volume, and your exegesis on this point, that point, that point. It's all wrong, you know, da da da, all wrong, da da. And, and then Bart would fire back and say, "Well, what about this, this, and this?" But their first few exchanges, I think, are really instrumental and instructive when it comes to Bart's particular legacy and his very churchly and theological understanding of what it means to read the Bible. Why? Because for Baumgartner, and for most of Baumgartner's Old Testament colleagues, this is what the task of Bible reading, remember that big $10 word, exegesis? This is what the task of exegesis is. It's uncovering the religious and historical moment of ancient Israel itself. Did you notice this morning, I'll give you an example of this. Did you notice this morning, Andrew was preaching, and he said when when God identifies Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, God's quoting himself. He's bringing together, remember, Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. That's a wonderful insight, right? So God's quoting himself, or he's using his own language to do this. For Walter Baumgartner, that understanding of Psalm 2 would be completely inappropriate. Why? Because if you read Psalm 2 closely, what Psalm 2 is, according to Baumgartner and most of the critical scholars of his day, Psalm 2 is, here's the technical term, a royal accession psalm. This was a psalm that was sung in the temple when the historical king of Israel came onto the throne. That's what that psalm tells you about. That psalm gives you a sense of what that moment was like, and that moment feeds your understanding of what that, how that psalm should best be understood. That's what exegesis does. It uncovers the historical moment. And guess what? Once you're done doing that, then exegesis has stopped. So apparently Baumgartner gave a lecture. And in this lecture, he um, he says, as an aside, oh, this really sets Bart's teeth on edge, right? He says, I will allow for homileticians, for <laughs> preachers, right? I'll let preachers and... Theologians, they, they can do their, this is me being not very kind, of, but this, in effect, we say, they can do their finger painting with the Bible if they want. They can do their, here's Martin Luther's famous interpretive uh, maxim, whatever pressures to Jesus, right? They can do that all they want to, and that's fine. They should do that. But that's not exegesis. And they need to know that. They've gone on to, the reception of the text, they've gone on over to practical Christianity, they've gone into the realm of preaching and homiletics, but they've left the realm of scientific exegesis. Because scientific exegesis uncovers something historical and it has to leave it there. Oh, Bart, that was it, right? This letter is hot, right? The one that he, in this response, he said, I read your letter. He said, and I have to tell you, these are my three conclusions that I must see as the necessary consequence of what you are saying. Number one, we can no longer teach our students and our theology faculty how to preach. He had said in a previous letter how confused our poor students are when they go from your lecture hall to mine because we're working with radically different conceptions of what we're doing. Our poor students, that have to go from you to me, right? So he says that. So no more preaching of the Old Testament in the theology faculty. Number two, we must remove the Old Testament completely from the church, get rid of it, and then number three, really, if you're honest, Walter, you need to move from our faculty into the history and philosophy faculty. Like, you, you shouldn't even be a colleague of mine anymore. Um, I mean, it was, it was that kind of sort of, and then the, of course in classic German you know, letter writing, it ends by saying, with great blessings to you and your family, and I hope, you, you know, I hope, I hope that goes well for you. Um, this, I think, reveals something of the deep tension that one finds between a churchly context for reading the Bible and an academic context for reading the Bible. And something happened in the European university system, and I think it's transferred maybe not as fully to the U.S., but it's present here as well, though I think we're more incredulous toward this these days. But the stakeholders, the magisterium, the authoritative interpreters of the Bible moved from the church to the university hall, to the academic context. And here's Bart saying that has gross and horrible effects in the life of the church. And he's speaking directly to Baumgartner about this. Why is this important? It's important because Bart is leaning hard into Baumgartner to let him know that his understanding of what the Bible is is insufficient in the context of a theology faculty and the church. It's insufficient. And then, to press it even further, and I think he's right on this, and and this is where he kind of kicks Baumgartner in the knee, and it's unscientific. You think you're being scientific because you're borrowing the canons of modernity, the canons of historicism, that one could go into any other faculty working with the same intellectual project and you think that makes what you're doing scientific. But this is what is truly scientific, Walter. What's truly scientific is when the object of our study and our understanding of what the object is compels and shapes how we go about studying it. In other words, our methods of reading are never detached from our understanding of what it is that we're actually engaging. It's never detached. You're engaging a species of something from the historical ancient Near Eastern past. That's what you're engaging. But what I'm engaging, and what my students are engaging, who are going to be preachers in the church, what they're engaging is the very Word of God itself. And because we have radically different conceptions of what the object is of our study, then we're working with very different conceptions of what it means to be scientific. When Barth wrote his commentary on the Romans uh, in 1920s, I believe, and then he did a second edition. When he wrote this second edition of his commentary of the Romans, um, he responded to his critics in the preface. And when he responded to the critics in the preface, it was pretty, pretty good word. One thing that he said was, if I have to choose between overly historicist or historical critical modes of engaging the Bible over against the old-fashioned doctrine of inspiration. I will choose inspiration any day of the week. And then he appeals to John Calvin. Watch John Calvin. How energetically the man of the 16th century wrestles with the Apostle Paul. And wrestling with what it is that Paul is speaking of. What he's witnessing to. And as he wrestles with the Apostle Paul, the world dividing the 1st century, Paul's world, from the 16th century, Calvin's world, becomes opaque. And then he goes on and he says, the critical scholar really needs to be more critical. That's a famous line from Barth. The critical scholar needs to be more critical. More critical of what? More critical of their own presuppositions that they're working with in the task of of their study as well. Um, so this little sort of exchange, I, I've been in it all week this week, this exchange between Bart and Baumgartner to me is very illustrative of, um, I'm going to get, a, get um, say something I might regret, I'm, I'm going to follow it. Very illustrative of the problem that we're facing today. Because when you go to mainline seminaries, right, the seminaries that are feeding the denomination that we're in, the seminaries that are feeding other mainline sources as well, when you go into mainline denominational seminaries, more often than not, the methods and approach to biblical studies that are being taught there are much more Baumgartner than they are Karl Bart. That's the ascendant dominant approach to what it means to be a scientific or at least a, an academic student of the Bible. This one does it as a historical task and it leaves it there. But once you get beyond his history, now you're off into, I don't know, existential feely land that has no, has no guide um, beyond someone's interpretive gut. right? And I think this is significant. Why? Because that fuels the pulpit. That fuels the teaching office and the life of the church. Um, I won't say the name of the seminary, but every one of you would know it. Um, but I, I know uh, a seminary uh, in the Episcopal Church where the only New Testament professor they have, the only one, um, tells his students with some regularity, right, with some regularity, um, what does he tell them? Um, when I say the Apostles' Creed, I cross my fingers behind my back. Right. Um, so the, I think this is a sort of significant it's sort of moment of distinction of between between um, um Bart and Baumgartner and the legacy the legacy that they leave. Now with all that said, let me stop for a second cuz that was a lot. Now let me stop. Any any questions that you want to sort of bat around? Yes, ma'am. All right, when you said uh, in Bart's you know, the, in the So uh, the 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 technical term would be the historical critical method. Um, and the historical critical method is this. One attends to the the genre of the text, what kind of text are we dealing with. One attends to the author's intention as best as one can understand who the author was. And then one also sort of brackets out theological commitments in an attendance to what the text says in its particular historical moment. That's really kind of at the heart of the historical critical project. Um, and I think Bart would say, and, and I need to be more nuanced in this myself, I think Bart would say, we learn a great deal from what historical critics have done in their reading of the Bible. I mean, like, can I just use an example of this? I told you, I use Baumgartner's lexicon all the time. You know, the, the achievements of what modern sort of scientific approaches to the Bible have left us. Are enormous. I make use of them all the time. So, this is not a sort of a, a strict either or uh, issue that we're dealing with here. But I think Bart would say all that historical stuff is one step in a stage along the way to a full understanding of what the Bible is doing. It's not the final destination point. I think that's what Bart would say. Yeah. Yeah. So Bart, the the technical, uh, the technical term is what drives to Christ. That, that sort of, it's a kind of Luther's bumper sticker for his interpretive approach to the Bible. Um, What is it in this text that drives us to the person and work of Jesus Christ? I think that's that's at the heart of of uh, Luther's hermeneutical approach. That question would be answered in different ways. Um, For example, Saint Augustine, if you were to ask him, what What's your hermeneutical approach? Augustine would say, whatever contributes to the love of God um, and the love of our neighbor. If you've read the Bible and it hasn't led you to love of God, love of neighbor, then your approach has been wrong. So there are multiple ways in which the tradition has answered this. But the, tradition, the Christian interpretive tradition would never instinctually leave the Bible in its historical moment. It would understand that the Bible is eternal, youthful, and alive, and continuing to do a kind of speaking service in this particular moment in time for us right now. It's not locked back there, it's speaking right now. And all the stuff back there can be illuminating and helpful for us to understand what those words are doing. What is a cow of Bashan? What's the significance of Mount Carmel? What is a rose of Sharon? I mean, the list could go on of all the kind of things that we need help historically just to know what the words are doing. But we don't stay there. We press through that to the subject matter of what the Bible is witnessing to, and that is uh, God. Uh, 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 Victor and I were talking about this in the way in the church this morning. That's the legacy of one of Barth's early lectures entitled The Strange New World of the Bible. Barth, trained in liberal theology, thought that he would go into the Bible and find it as a mirror of his best moral self. That's what I'm going to find. I'm going to go to the Bible. I'm going to find a mirror of my best human self. And instead, Bart said, I went into the Bible and I discovered the Bible is tyrannical in wanting me to enter into the world of God, not the world of my own self-discovery. And that fuels, by the way, Bart's interpretation of ancient Israel and, and the New Testament. Here's what Baumgartner said in one of his letters. New Testament scholars are after the historical Jesus. Old Testament scholars are after the historical Israel. And the texts are sources toward that end. But you, Bart, your focus is the Bible as a book. My my goal is ancient Israel. See, Bart is working again with a classic understanding, a Reformation understanding, of the inspiration and revelatory character of the Bible. It's the Bible itself as a document, as a written word, that is the continuing source of ongoing revelation in the life of the church, not the historical background behind the biblical text. I have a, my, my, my doctoral supervisor wrote a little book on, on I mean, a little article on, on the hermeneutics of the, interpretation of the prophets that I thought was really helpful. And this is what, what he, how he entitled the, the article. On letting the prophet, oh, no, on letting the book act like a man. Right. And what he meant by that was, I'm not all that interested in the historical Micah. Or wanting to hear the crackling voice of Isaiah the prophet as he thundered wherever. I, I assume all that happened. But it's the text itself that's the ongoing location of the canonical work of God to deliver his own self in these words. And that, that's a significant point of departure, I think, between Baumgartner and most biblical scholars of his day. Um, the Bible is a source, along with all other kinds of literary and archaeological sources, to get behind it to the events themselves. Or the religious historical impulse of those ancient people. I want to appreciate that. Just like I'd like to know about the Greeks and maybe the ancient Indian religions and Eastern religions, I, I want to know about the religious impulse of the ancient Near Eastern world. And Bart says, that's not my goal at all. My goal is to hear the voice of the living God. you see how radically divergent that is? I want to hear the voice of the living God in these words that are left to us from an ancient people. So the ancient people can be very helpful to, to get that sense of those words, but we don't, we don't leave it there. I think that's what, what Bart gets after. Yeah, John. Um, this may be too simple of an example, but to me, the intersection is like the woman at the well. And I can read that story, but if I didn't understand the importance of Samaritan or a man speaking at the well to a woman. Right, right. And then she goes without probably one course in theology and to see that many people believe off of what they felt to thought. And, and to me, that's, I need to know that understanding to fully appreciate the humility of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ, the center of the redemption of Christ, and what effect that has through her testimony but I want the freedom to go home and bark and enjoy that. With yeah. All the other New Testament, and yeah. Old Testament stories yeah. that speak of this thing. Yeah. The, the 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 metaphor that I use with my students at at uh, Beeson is all of that interpretive background material, like you know the the scandalous nature of a woman at a well, um, the significance of the fact that Jesus decides to walk through Samaria and not around it. Um, uh, oh goodness. What? Why? Um, why Pharaoh Nico II met Josiah in the plains of Megiddo? I mean, all, all those sort of background issues. Um, I want them in the interpretive car. I think they're important. But they need to stay in the back seat. And what's happened with the sort of the dominant strand, and I think tendency of modern biblical criticism, is to bring all that stuff into the front seat of the car, and frankly, it becomes the car itself. And part of the danger of this, a little bit, is again not not to deny the importance of all that kind of study. Part of the danger is um, the self-congratulatory and, and and gnostic side of this. And what what were the Gnostics after their own sort of private interpretive revelations, their own individual sort of ecstatic experience, and and some of this stuff can become, hey, if you just had these this knowledge about. Um, the ancient Eastern world in the ninth century and the importance of the Amrite dynasty and all of its technicalities, then you'd really understand 1st Kings or 2nd Kings. I, I, my, my, I think my, my Reformed um, and Protestant sensibilities begin to twitch when I hear that. Um, because that's a, that's a species of Gnosticism. It's special knowledge. It's unique knowledge. And it doesn't mean that that's just not important and can't aid and illuminate But to become the substantive core of what the reading is, I think, is to sort of misplace things in their proper ordering. Um, I mean, it's a similar thing for biblical languages, right? I mean, I imagine not very many of you in here are spending your time parsing Hebrew verbs as you work through Genesis, Um, you know, and and God bless you for not doing that, that's fine, but guess what, you're reading Genesis in a translated form and Are there things that you might have better insight into Genesis if you knew Hebrew? Yeah, I think so. That's part of the reason I pay how I pay the mortgage. Um, But it doesn't mean that you're hamstrung to be able to read the Bible intelligently, faithfully, responsibly with the gifts that you you have. So I think you know we just sort of put this in a larger conversation. Um, I get this, you know, from people who will come and say. I want to come and learn Greek at Beeson, or I want to learn Hebrew, um, because I think and I always sniff out Gnosticism with that. Why do you want to do that? Um, is it because you want you know special knowledge or something? Because I just want to tell you, it's going to create more problems than resolve. You know, if you're okay with that, come on and do it. And I, that's me being hyperbolic, but I mean the point is, you know, we read our Bibles. Martin Luther. Here's a great example: Luther and Calvin. Can their readings of the Apostle Paul be challenged? I think in certain ways they certainly can, and probably should be. That's why we continue to engage the Bible. But I certainly would never be in a position to say that Luther or Calvin could not have understood Paul, because they didn't have the resources to understand the dynamics of Second Temple Judaism. See, that, and that, that's the kind of hot topic today in Pauline studies. Like, let's uh, let's uncover Second Temple Judaism and understand that worldview because that's what Paul is combating. And now we'll really understand Paul. Well, it might help. And I I, I applaud the efforts to kind of engage that material. But not at an effort to then say, and those who've come before who didn't have that, they couldn't have really understood. Now That's a theological problem, I think, when it comes to the world of the Bible. Did I hear you one time say that Augustine didn't know Hebrew or Greek? Neither and he's in our dome at Beeson. You know, I told, my, I told my students, you're never going to be in the dome, ever. Um, you know. yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I was going to do the Job. I-, I didn't even get to my computer. I was going to do um, a B- barter reading of Job as an illustration of this. We'll do that next week. All right. Lord, bless us as we go our separate ways and uh, encourage us as we continue to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen.